Marsha, 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 or talking about the banks we normally ignore. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. Today is March 14th, 2016. This week on Industry Focus is Interview Week. Uh, joining me today in studio is Tim Hansen, one of the Motley Fool's uh, heads of the product team and a former portfolio manager here. Thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure, Gabby. How are you doing? Really great. Thank you. It's really exciting to have someone actually in the studio with me for a change. I'm glad I could make it then. <laughs> um, so today we are going to talk about bank stocks that we normally gloss over. Uh, so small banks, which the rumor is around the office that you are super into small banks. I, I do love my tiny banks, yes. <laughs> um, so let's start with a super basic question. What, what makes a bank a small bank? Well, it's size. It's size is what makes it small. Um, generally speaking, small banks, community banks, as they're or as they're widely known as, or regional banks, um, you're talking banks that have assets of um, certainly less than ten billion dollars in assets. And generally speaking, you know, less than a billion is where it starts to get quite small. But um, that's among the most fertile hunting grounds for sort of interesting ideas in this space. Cool. Um, I don't know. I think the smallest bank that we have talked about on the show might be Astoria Financial because they merged with New York Community mm-hmm. Bank. <laughs> but I think other than that, I don't think we get much smaller than no, that. No, I mean it's it's a pretty overlooked sector, you know, and and that's why um it's it's a good place for investors to go looking for ideas. You know, you've got 50, 60, 70 people, hundreds of regulators, thousands of investors looking at things like JP Morgan and Wells Fargo every day. Um you know, the, the opportunity to find a mispricing there is probably pretty remote. Whereas, if you're the only investor in something like Carter Bank and Trust in uh, rural Virginia or um, Suffolk Bank Corp out on the east end of Long Island, if you're, if you're literally the only person looking at um, the numbers, then the opportunity to find a mispricing is that much more significant. Yeah, I feel like that that's probably the greatest appeal of a small bank over a larger bank. For well, you know, I would say I, I would say there there are, there are a couple. Um, Points that make them more appealing to look at, certainly from an analyst standpoint, from like a learning and both a return and, and a learning perspective. Um, you know, first they're a lot more simple; they're easy, to eat, a lot easier to understand. Um, they don't have huge slush funds on their balance sheets that are just like other or derivative contracts or undated. Virgin, you know, I mean, those are categories you have no idea. You know, you look at some of those things and there's notional value in the tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars on some of these bank balance sheets, and you don't know what's inside of it. Uh, whereas small banks are. A lot easier to read from a from a balance sheet perspective to see what they're doing with their assets and their liabilities, you know. And secondly, you know, good luck getting Jamie Dimon or someone like that on the phone. Whereas if you're looking at a, a community bank, particularly a bank in your own community, which is one of the best places to go looking for them, um, the opportunity to go in and, and talk to senior level leadership, even if you're just an individual investor, is probably pretty good. And so, you know, there's no better way to get to know a management team than to actually get to know them, like. Over a cup of coffee, right? And so that is incredible. That's yeah. something that has never occurred to me that is possible to do. Yeah, you, I mean, you know, we're here in Northern Virginia, and, and Northern Virginia is a pretty rich um, environment with regards to small banks. You know, you've got uh, Burke and Herbert, which is a big name in Alexandria, um, Access National. Um, there's Carter Bank and Trust. There are a number of these, and, and, and literally, you can pick up the phone and call these folks, and they'd be they'd be happy to talk to you because they want to talk about their business, like any entrepreneur. The, the guys who run these companies um, want to talk their talk about their books and so on and so forth and, and showing some interest and getting to know them is, is a great way to, to accomplish you know a bunch of things as an investor a maybe get some return and then b you know become a better investor learn about a company um, really from the bottoms up 
That's really interesting. The other thing that I that I thought was really interesting that you said was knowing what's actually in these portfolios. Um, I recently watched The Big Short, which was maybe the most stressful movie for me of all time, even though I knew how it was going to end. <laughs> I feel like that's how people in 1996 watched the Titanic. Like that's, <laughs> that's how it felt watching this movie. Um, but one of the things, like the collateralized, sorry, collateralized debt obligations, say that three times fast. <laughs> CDOs. <laughs> CDOs. Um, a lot of people have no idea what's actually in them, and that was one of the premises of the of the movie is that these people had like these giant portfolios, and no one actually knew what was inside of any of them. I mean, there, there are so many messed up things about that that situation with regards to the financial industry. I mean, you know, you had myriad businesses whose job were originators, right? And what does an originator do with a loan? It simply makes the loan and then sells the responsibility of the loan to somebody else. And in, in many of those cases, the people buying it would then pick those loans apart and sell different portions of them. And so really what was left over from a financial product standpoint bore little to no resemblance to what had been created in the first place. And the person creating the loan downstream could not care less about what ended up happening to it upstream. You know, whereas um, it's, all, it's a volume play at that point, and that's where you end up getting so many poorly written, underwritten loans. Um, you know, one of the things about community banks is they are community banks, which means that their lending footprints tend to be in the um, region or area uh, that they're doing their business. So if you want to go back to Burke and Herbert here in Alexandria, the bulk of their business is being done in Northern Virginia with Northern Virginia homeowners, Northern Virginia businesses, so on and so forth. And generally speaking, when they originate a loan, they're much more likely to keep it on their own books. So the incentive is there for them to only originate loans um, that will remain money good for the lifetime of the loan. Um, so just that level of personal responsibility um, is something that I think you find in smaller financial institutions that has sort of been lost um, as as financial institutions have become you know too big to fail, so to speak. That's that's a, such a great answer. I'm just so impressed. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, no, but uh, so so we have these small banks. We've talked about why you like them, why you have convinced me to like them. Um, but what are is there? Do you have to assess small banks in a different way than you do big banks? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you know, starting with a, a, a small bank. Um, in in the environment we're in today, there are two real core criteria that I look for first. One is a loyal, low cost deposit bank. So one advantage that community banks have is that they're very strong. They have very strong footprints in their communities, um, and the people who have their money stashed in them are, are unlikely to be very price sensitive. So, you know, if you look at some of the internet banks that are around today. Um, generally speaking, they compete very vigorously on interest rates. If you know, if you look at Bankrate.com or something, and you look at Bank of Internet and First Internet Bank of Indiana and all these names, um, they advertise uh, pretty attractive interest rates to try to lure deposits into their balance sheet. Community banks don't have to do that; they get deposits simply by virtue of being a community pillar. And so, if you look at Suffolk Bank Corp or some of these others, um, Cascade Bank Corp out in Oregon. Um, their cost of funds is literally somewhere around 12, 15 bips right now, basis points. Um, so that's, you know, that's crazy. way less than 1% or 2% or so on and so forth. Obviously, it's a low interest rate environment, but even though their interest rates that they're giving their customers are so low, customers aren't taking their money out. And so that's a really big advantage to have in any environment. Um, and you can sort of test the loyalty of a deposit base by looking back through at the financial crisis um, and say, hey, when these banks were threatened, as many of them were, because it was a tough time to be a small bank, um, did the depositors start to flee or did they add money to the bank? And if you've got a loyal, low-cost deposit base, that's a really nice place to be. And then the other thing is uh, a, a low loan-to-deposit ratio, which is just to say how much of the money that how much of the capital on the liabilities side of your balance sheet have you loaned out in the form of um, assets. <clears throat> Um, 
if you have a relatively low and there's no blanket vanilla statement that all community banks are conservative or some are, you know, right. they, they'll depend from geography to geography and management team to management team. But if you can find a low, low, uh, low uh, cost funds and a low loan to deposit ratio, which you expect to Im- expand, um, generally speaking, their loan should reprice more rapidly than their deposits as interest rate drives. And that's mm-hmm. when you'll see some extra juice show up on the earnings line. Um, so the third piece to look at after you find those two criteria are what what region does the bank operate in? Because unlike um, Bank of America, which could take a loan from or take a deposit that you make here in Virginia and loan it to a homeowner in Seattle, ostensibly, right? Um, Burke and Herbert takes a loan from you here in Alexandria and generally speaking has to find somewhere else in Alexandria to deploy that capital. Um, so you know, different parts of the country are in different economic circumstances. D.C., you know, the government is always hiring. It's the big joke around here. Um, and so D.C. is a, usually a pretty attractive place to think that a bank can grow its balance sheet. Um, Flint, Michigan, probably not a place where the local bank has a lot of opportunities for right. growth. So after you look at the characteristics of the bank, you certainly want to look at the characteristics of the environment in which it's operating and make sure that um, the opportunity exists there for, for some growth, probably. Yeah, we were chatting a few episodes ago about... Um how small banks that are dependent on the oil patch are doing right now, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's it's a hard it's a hard environment for them. Um, I don't think anyone expected oil to go so low. Actually, we talked about that last week. No one expected oil to no. go as low <laughs> as it did. Um, and it's really interesting because some of these banks have like these like century long balance sheets, so they've really like ridden the up and down of that and managed to survive. But then you have other small banks that you know maybe started out like 20, 30 years ago and. It's kind of a little bit more uncertain for them. Well, it's tough too. And if you look at some of the banks operating in Houston when the energy patch was booming, you know they were getting booked value multiples of two or three times, which is pretty rich, right? I mean, in this yeah. in this space, generally speaking, you want to pay around book value if um, if you can. Um, but you know the other interesting point that energy brings up, and you know, sort of oil sector or banks that are tied to the oil sector, whether it be a community bank in North Dakota or Oklahoma or Texas, um, is loan concentration. And so, if you're 100 percent concentrated in energy, you know, E and P company loans, um, they may not have gone bad yet, but you've got a pretty big risk on your hands. And certainly, there's a lot of sort of just as there was in the residential mortgage crisis, a lot of sort of that extend and pretend, which means to say that you moderate the terms of the loan so that the borrower does not go into default, mm-hmm. and then everybody just sort of pretends that nothing's wrong. But eventually, you know, sort of the the, the chickens come home to roost on that, and you have to write it down. Um, so if you're, you know, and this is true whether it's a big bank or a small bank, you want to look for banks who, on the loan side, are pretty equally, not necessarily equally weighted, but diversified across the different types of loans you can make. And so those would be, you know, um, lines of credit for people, uh, for individuals, um, residential mortgages, commercial mortgages, uh, CNI, which is commercial and industrial, which just means loans to businesses, and then obviously you can also get into agricultural loans in some of the places like Iowa and so on and so forth. So. You know, if you saw an Iowan bank that was 95% in agricultural loans, that would be a little bit more of a red flag than an Iowan bank that was 40% agricultural and then had a sort of an even mix of the other categories. Right. Is that is that something of an advantage that big banks have over small banks that they are able to kind of like hedge so effectively? Yeah, I mean, you could it could be an advantage. I mean, your your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness, right? So the ability to slice up loans into packages that don't look like loans anymore mm-hmm. and to try to hedge out risk probably gives more of an illusion of safety than it does a real sense of, or a real reality of safety. Um, you know, a good rule of thumb for, for investing is, um, you know, is it complicated? No, 
and is it expensive? No. Oh, then it's probably a good investing decision. But if it's either complicated or expensive, it's probably a bad move. Yeah. And hedging, for the most part, is both complicated and expensive. Right. And there are very few people who do it well. Um, most people, I think, do it. It'll and, cut down on your return, right? Because if you're hedging, then you're betting something's going Well, that's why it's expensive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you know, some of them do it for regulatory reasons, but you know, as we saw during the mortgage crisis, no amount of hedging really helped them. And it probably, the amount of hedging, that illusion of security probably was more painful than actually being able to see transparently what was on the balance sheet and then make a decision with facts rather than sort of gut, gut feel. Um, so, you know, I think certainly big banks have an advantage with regards to being able to take deposits from one place and deploy them in another. You know, small banks are, are, are trying to do that, replicate that, which is why there's been a lot of um, consolidation in the sector recently, mm-hmm. among other reasons. Um, but I think there's something always to be said for having to be 100% accountable for the business you're doing and not sort of hiding behind a series of complicated financial transactions. Yeah, that definitely, for me anyway, makes me feel better as an investor when I kind of actually like know what's going on. Stand behind yeah, the yeah. business. I'm not like, <laughs> I don't know. The, I'm, I won't get into this. I don't feel like I should just be naming companies that I think are morally wrong. No, go for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe maybe another show. Maybe I'll just do an entire show about the morally objectionable companies. Morally objectionable co- That'd be companies. A good one. Um, sure, you're invited. Make a list. Awesome. Um, I have some, I have strong feelings about more than a few companies. But. <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> um, you actually you mentioned a little bit earlier that merger and acquisition activity has um, increased. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fed actually released a paper on this a little while ago. Um, Post financial crisis, smaller banks have kind of been gobbled up by bigger banks. Um, do you have any insights onto why that's happening and like why that's continuing? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first is regulatory costs have gone up pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the banks that I own personally, which I mentioned earlier, is called Carter Bank and Trust. And Mr. Carter continues to run Carter Bank and Trust. And he has, um, in his annual letters to shareholders, has, has various tirades that you can check out about how significantly the cost of regulation has gone up over the past few years. Uh, obviously, there are reasons why that cost has gone up. And, you know, it's not solely without merit. Um, But when your fixed cost of doing business goes up, if you're a small company, a very first logical thing to do is to sell, to try to spread that base, that cost base over a larger breadth of operations. So that's been driving some people to sell. Um, Additionally, you know, as um, larger banks have needed more capital, um, particularly tier one capital, um, you know, the, the low cost, loyal deposit bases that community banks have start to look pretty attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, being able to buy those for, you know, um, 10, 15 cents per deposit dollar um, can be a pretty good deal for some of those. And you've seen um, players like Bank uh, Umqua and some others try to go after regional rivals to, to make their balance sheets a little bit bigger. And then, you know, thirdly, like I said, it, having the scale um, in a what has been a pretty tepid economy for the last few years, um, being able to be a little bit more geog- geographically diversified, so you're not quite as tied. If you're Bank of Flint, Michigan, you're not just Bank of Flint, Michigan. Maybe you could be Bank of the entire Upper Midwest or something. You know, that gives you more right. opportunities. Um, and you've also seen, just to sort of give more evidence of that point, a lot of uh, recent strategy for a lot of these smaller banks is to just open loan production offices in sort mm-hmm. of ma- larger cities. So. You know, Cascade Bank, which is in Bend, Oregon, has a loan production office in Portland now, and they want to open one in Sacramento. They're not going to take deposits in those markets, but they want to be able to make loans in those markets. Um, similarly, Suffolk Bank, which I mentioned earlier, has opened some loan production offices closer to New York City, obviously where the economy is a little bit more dynamic than it is out on the east end of Long Island. So I think I think the trend core towards consolidation um, will continue. Um, 
And that can be a good thing for investors because, generally speaking, something will get acquired at a premium to its market value. But uh, you, you know, the the other idea here is that in the world of community banking, you know, there's still this idea of the gentleman banker. There are no hostile takeovers mm-hmm. in community banks. So, you know, Mr. Carter, for example, will probably have to make it known that he's interested in retiring before any offers will materialize for Carter Bank and Trust. Um, so it can be a little bit slow moving, even though that trend is certainly accelerating. That's really interesting. Um, I remember I remember reading about. I want to say it was M and T Bank was trying to acquire uh, a smaller bank. I think in Maryland, mm-hmm. um, and it, it ended up being a disaster for them. It took them five years because uh, there was money laundering happening at that bank, <laughs> and so the Fed, uh, the, the the federal government was like, "You have to make sure that this doesn't happen again." And the amount that they were laundering, it wasn't huge amounts. It wasn't like fifty thousand dollars. It was like. I don't know, like maybe like ten or something, which mm-hmm. I know sounds like a lot, but for banks, that's not a lot of money. Um, it, it's it's definitely an interesting proposition for larger banks. Well, yeah, sure. certainly you want to know what you're buying. Yeah, um, and that came out of the blue. for Yeah, them. no, that, that and that's true. I mean, certainly, you, you'd hope internal controls at any bank are strong um, because bank failures, whether they're small or big, are, are uncomfortable for lots of different people involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, hostile. There, there are a couple of hedge funds that specialize in trying to do activist campaigns against um, small banks. Stillwell is one, for example, and you know, they, for example, um, make sure that whenever they try to be hostile or activist with a small bank, that um, there are no large insider shareholders or community shareholders because those people are. Very, it's very hard to get them to vote against. In the same way that they're loyal to the deposit base, they're loyal to the, the bank. And so um, they spend a lot of time tactically um, finding votes, counting votes, figuring out how many shares they need to buy in order to actually exact change at an annual meeting. Um, so it, it is a chummy sector, which is kind of an interesting dynamic that you don't find in a lot of places in the stock market anymore. Yeah, definitely not. Um, one of those places is the tech field, right? Like that's that's very shark eat larger shark if possible. Um and is that an analogy? No. That was that was a really bad <laughs> metaphor. Um, our sound guy is probably not going to edit that out. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But anyway, uh, it's very it's very doggy dog. How about that? I think that was the metaphor I was going. I for. like sharky shark. Sharky shark. Shark eat larger shark. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the goal, right? You want to eat a larger shark. I mean, <laughs> then you have plenty to eat. Um, but uh, technology is a really rapidly evolving sector. Um, and we've talked about it a few times on this show that technology is changing the financial sector. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the question is, how is it, how is it affecting small banks? I, I, was, I was reading a uh, 10K, I think, earlier in 2015, and on a small bank's, uh, like in their like, little announcement section at the beginning, they were mm-hmm. like, we just released a mobile banking app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was 2015, and I was right. like, "How?" No, it's a fair <laughs> point. I should have mentioned that earlier. When, you know, that's another thing: driving up costs for, or driving up fixed operating costs for smaller banks that they would seek to sort of spread that cost across a wider asset base. Because you know, having your own mobile app is expensive. Um, you know, we la- I was laughing not long ago. Carter Bank, I think their big triumph from 2014 or 2015 was introducing telephone banking, which was like what? you know years beyond the mobile <laughs> or behind the mobile app space. Um, yeah, mobile banking, internet banking, um, payment processing, uh, Apple Pay, those are all things that are you know interesting and hard for small community banks to adapt to. Um, they're certainly trying. I mean, it's, it's table stakes stuff now you know, in order to compete and hang on to them. I mean, those deposits are probably loyal only to a point. 
um, where they want to be able to take a picture of a check and deposit it or use their, their fingerprint to buy something or so on and so forth. Um, there's an interesting company in Austin, Texas called Q2, um, and they do um, – it's a public company, K Q. TWO Q2, and they do um, sort of outsource mobile app and internet banking design for community banks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, it's been very fast growing for them because they sort of have an out of box solution. They can customize the design, you know, and they're happy, you know, they're, they're hoping that by gobbling up or getting business from a lot of small banks, as those small banks get acquired, their technology would get adapted by larger or get adopted by larger and larger banks. And they get paid on a per user basis, so you know, obviously, having more users would be very good for them. Um, so, I, you know, no bank is going to have an, I, no small bank is going to have an IT department of 100 or 200 people. So, you know, certainly the outsourcing and, uh, and development of those sorts of things um, is driving costs up, and is another um, thing pushing consolidation. That's really interesting. Um, I, this is this is kind of an ongoing conversation on this show about how financial tech is changing the sector. We had a pretty long show about Apple Pay the other day as mm-hmm. well. Um, and it's it's interesting to think about uh, these kind of like, I don't want to call them bit players, but people you just don't normally think about and how it's, it is going to affect them. Because like uh, JP Morgan and Bank of America, obviously, they have like huge buy-in on these kinds of things. But Well, I mean, this is a little bit farther afield from small banks, but it's, it's a fascinating point. I mean, Apple Pay, you know, Apple takes a huge cut Yeah. if you, if you buy with Apple Pay. Um, but the data that I've seen from their side, is that if you install Apple Pay in your app, the take rate on whatever you're selling is like three goes to three to five or even ten x, which you would get without having Apple Pay. That's insane. And so, you make it up in volume what you lose on commission, but it's sort of like it's almost like a deal with the devil, right? You're like, ah, <laughs> I got to give away thirty percent to Apple. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to sell a million units. Maybe I do. You know, that's a math problem at the end of the day. But you know, ultimately, um, one would expect prices to come down in that space. Eventually, Apple, yeah. I mean, well, and there, the there are there are competitors with Apple Pay. Um, there's the I can never remember if it's Google Wallet, Android Pay, or if it's flipped. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it might no, be when the you, other yeah, way. when you look at the commissions Apple Pay's get, there's certainly incentive to compete. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's uh, Walmart with their with their MCX uh, payment plan, um, which is eventually going to get rolled out. So we'll see what happens with that, um, since I have so many major retailers in it. But we are getting farther afield, (laughs) and we are running out of time. So let me finish up with one last question, which is, what is the single most important consideration for you when you are investing in a small bank? If you had to choose one, which is hard. Uh, Picking one, you know, ultimately, if you you check the box on all the sort of financial criteria and geographic criteria, I mean, and this is true probably for banks, and other companies. I mean, you want to get a sense of management and make sure that they're honest people who, um, you know, consider all stakeholders when making strategic decisions. You know, whether it's a small bank or a tech company or what have you. If you're fundamentally have ignorant or dishonest management, you know, the the the, the wheels are going to come off at some point. And in the world of small, you know, community banking, um, where loyalty and honesty are still important factors, I mean, the quality of the management team is pretty critical. Um, you've got to, they've got to keep an eye on their deposit base. They've got to make sure their underwriting standards remain high. <clears throat> they've got to keep costs down, and they've got to maintain a, a strong presence in their community. So, you know, like I said earlier, if you're interested, you know, start with your probably start with your local bank. You know, look around and say, hey, who's my community bank? Um, they're probably public, and if they're not public, you can even access their filings uh, via the FDIC. Um, take a look, study them, give management a call, see if they'll talk to you. I mean, I think that's a great way to get started. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's I my really pleasure, Gabby. It. Yeah, you're definitely coming back on the show. Um, <laughs> Uh, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy based solely on what you hear. Uh, contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Let us know what you think about Tim. Let us know what you think about small banks. And everyone have a great week. Bye.